Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. You guys know we bring you a lot of first-time CEOs on this podcast, right? I mean, recently we had Deb Liu who shared her amazing story of taking on her first-time CEO position at Ancestry and how she dove into that new challenge, even though she'd never done anything like that before. Okay, so by the way, you guys should definitely listen to that episode if you haven't already. But what we don't often hear is a story of a first-time CEO who takes over an international restaurant chain at the age of 30, I'm not done, at the age of 30, right before a global pandemic slams the brakes on the entire restaurant industry and then grows the business by 31% in the pandemic's second year. Okay, but even that isn't the craziest part of this success story. My guest today is Damola Adamolikan. He's Nigerian-born, dreamed of going to an Ivy League school and having a career in investment banking. So how did he end up as the CEO of casual Chinese food chain P.F. Chang's? He's here with me today on his rather unconventional journey to the top and the monumental nightmare he faced just as he took the CEO reins. Damola, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. So glad you're here. Thanks for having me, Liz. It's my it's my pleasure. OK, um, first of all, P.F. Chang's, how much do I love the Mongolian beef? It's it's the best in the world. You know, I think that was one of the key things we, we loved about the business when we when we bought it a few <laughs> years ago, is just how good the product was. So the Mongolian beef, the uh, dumplings, dynamite shrimp, it's it's a lineup of, of classics and uh, uh, certainly a strength of the brand. Oh, my God. I mean, I can't tell you there's one right near my house. And thank you. Love that Mongolian beef. OK, so. Let, now that we've got that out of the way, I, I want to start from <laughs> the good fact- place to start. That's yeah. a good place to start, Liz. Yeah. Absolutely. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, you know, I want to get to the fact that you are from Nigeria, but you did live in four different countries all before the age of nine. Correct. Which countries and what was that like for you? Yeah. You know, I was born in a, a small town in Nigeria called Ile Ife, which is southwestern Nigeria. Um, I lived in Amsterdam for for about two years when I was young, you know, fun fact, my first language was, was Dutch uh, when I was <laughs> running around as a child in, in Rotterdam in, in the Netherlands. Uh, I lived in Zimbabwe for two years in Harare, which is the capital. Um, and then I moved to the United States when I was nine to, to Springfield, Illinois. Uh, and then I uh, started my, my journey in America. How many languages do you speak? I speak too well. Um, and a few that I spoke at some point that I can throw out a, a few lines here and there, but I speak Yoruba, which is the uh, one of the major languages in, in Nigeria, and I speak, speak English well. And then I spoke Shona, which is the language in Zimbabwe, uh, and then I spoke Dutch for a period of time when I was younger. Mm. So there's there's some knowledge floating around in my head somewhere of, of those other languages, but but two, two that I speak well. I'm going off on a tangent here, but how do you have zero accent of any kind when you speak English? <laughs> zero. You know, yeah. When you move around as much as I did when you were young, I, you know, I, I think you learn to assimilate. Um, and it's helpful when you're you're still a kid because you can you can pick up the accents more quickly. 
Uh, but the other thing I will say is when I was young, my, my dad used to travel to America and he'd bring back movies and, and cartoons. So I watched a lot of American media, even when I was living in Nigeria. Uh, so, I, you know, in school in Nigeria, I'd use American uh, words that, you know, Nigeria was a former British colony. So there was always a little, uh, you know, I was, I was the one using the American spellings and the American words when everybody else was, was using the British. So I, I think it was it was it was meant to be that I'd, I'd end up here and that I'd. Uh, you know, I got a head start in terms of, of, of American English, even when I was in Nigeria. Well, sure. I mean, most Nigerians who are born and raised, at least even in part Nigeria, have a slight British accent when they speak English. You're you're full blown American. And maybe oh, yeah. uh, part of the reason that you moved around so much is that your dad, a famed neurologist, correct? Tell me about that. That's right. That's right. So my dad, yeah, my dad is a neurologist. He, he studies diseases and the impact on the brain. Um, so, you know, as a young doctor, he tackled a challenge, um, in Southwestern Nigeria, there was a disease that was causing people to, to fall out and have strokes and nobody really knew what was causing it. Um, and it wasn't heavily studied. It affected mostly poor regions in, in Nigeria. Uh, and, you know, he did a lot of work. He took on the challenge and he discovered the, the cause and ultimately published a report that, that led to the cure. Um, so he received a lot of international attention as a result, you know, he got to travel the world a bit, was invited to New York by the American Neurological Society to present, uh, and that was his first time in America. Um, you know, he, he arrived and presented his work and was really taken by how much, uh, people here valued, uh, medicine and, and science and yes. academia. Um, and, uh, and at, at the opportunities here, you know, he talked to his colleagues and heard their stories and. Um, you know, made a decision uh, that he wanted to bring his family here. And the rest of my journey was kind of a path to America because, you know, it's a pretty complicated process. So all the different stops were were for reasons related to to the immigration to, to America. But, uh, you know, we moved here and when I was nine years old in 1998 and, uh, you know, been here since. Were you welcomed? How did it feel being an immigrant at such a young age? We talked to a lot of immigrant CEOs who you know, often talk about how they felt like the only one, they stuck out wherever they were. Uh, which city were you in where you began your American life? Well, you know, my, my first feeling of being, you know, very different was was actually in Zimbabwe. We lived there for two years before Nigeria. Um, and, you know, those who aren't familiar with African geography, Nigeria is in the West, Zimbabwe is far in the South. It's like going from Britain to Moldova, like both in Europe, but very well, different. Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I landed in Zimbabwe when I was seven, you know, didn't speak the language, uh, didn't know the food, understand the culture, et cetera. So I, I, you know, I learned to assimilate, um, you know, there. And, you know, one of the things that, uh, I, I learned when I got to America was very similar, right? Everything was different. The language was different. The people were different, but I'd had that experience. So I actually assimilated quite well. And one thing that helped me in Zimbabwe was, you know, I was always a very good athlete and as a young boy. Even if you don't, if you can be as different as, as different can be. But if you're really good at the sport that people care about, people end up <laughs> accepting you. Right. So I played soccer when I was a kid and I got there and I was, you know, immediately one of the best in Zimbabwe and on our team. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted to be my friend. Nice. Right? So I got to Illinois. Uh, the sport that people cared about there was not soccer, it was basketball. <laughs> so I picked up basketball and uh, got good at that and, and made some friends. So, you know, it's it's it's, uh, it's a challenge, certainly. But I think I learned um you know, people are people, no matter where you are in the world. And there's certain, uh, you know, when you get there and you're different, you're going to be the other, right? And it's, you know, who's this African kid? And, you know, all the, it's it's difficult at first, but, um, 
you know, if you, you know, my younger brother was very uh, charming and very good with people. So he made friends just by taking any jokes and turning it around and making people laugh and, and they loved him. Right. And I learned that from him. And I also learned that, you know, if you're good at things, you know, for me, it was sports at the time. If, if you're, if you're, if you can excel at things, people will accept you and appreciate you. And um, so that was part of my, my process as a child was just coming in and, uh, you know, taking on whatever people did and being better, you know, being the best at it. And well, fight people, through it. Uh, you know, yeah, you fight people, through it. Exactly. So you go to Brown University, Ivy League. That was one of your dreams. And then you get your M- MBA at Harvard. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's a double whammy, isn't it? Yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Um, and uh, I went to go join Paulson and Company after I graduated from Harvard. And what happens? What is your first opportunity where you get a chance to help with the deal that eventually brings P.F. Chang's to your forefront of your life? Yeah, you know, so I worked for John for a couple of years before the P.F. Chang's deal came out. And, and, and that's important because, you know, over, over those couple of years, you know, I was tasked with some pretty important things. You know, I oversaw, I oversaw a couple of portfolios on his behalf. I, uh, you know, I, I, at some point he needed help with the healthcare portfolio and it, it wasn't my background, but I, but I, you know, I dove in and I figured it out and helped to manage that, uh, did some merger arbitrage, a, a different type of investing, um, you know, did some retail equity investing. There was a gold uh, mining board that he needed a, a director on. So I, I took that on, I joined the board, I traveled to Alaska, visited the mines, like became involved in, in that. So I was doing a lot for him over a couple of years and, you know, he learned to trust me and trust my work ethic and, judgment. Um, and so when this deal came about, actually came about from a guy I used to work with at, at, um, at Goldman, uh, an investment banker who was now selling, he worked at Bank of America and he was now selling PF Chang's. Uh-huh. Uh, so it was a sell side process, you know, pretty traditional The people who owned it wanted to sell it. They hired a bank to go find suitors to, to buy it from them. Right. So, um, you know, it, it, it landed on my desk. Uh, he said, Hey, listen, I know you guys don't do a lot of private equity, but I thought this was interesting. Uh, so I, I looked at it, shared it with John. He thought it was worth spending time on. Um, so I did a bunch of work, uh, to figure out the situation, what's going on with the business. How's it performing? How good is the brand? How good are the products? Um, what are they doing from a marketing perspective, the real estate? So I spent about three or four months just understanding everything and and developing a point of view as to whether we wanted to own it or not. And, um, if we did what the plan was going to be like, what's the thesis, what's the strategy, right? Um, and John was very involved in that. So, you know, I, at the end of, at the end of the period, I, I gave him a recommendation. I wrote a thesis around it and, and shared it with John and, and, you know, he's, he is a visionary, right? It's not what he does typically, but he saw an opportunity and, mm-hmm. and gave us the green light. Uh, so, you know, Can I, I stop you there. I have to yeah, stop please. you there. As you're please. putting this plan together, did you ever envision that somebody would say, okay, now you run it? No, no. <laughs> Investing is like, is like, is, is you're, being, you're a spectator in a horse race, right? Like you do a lot of work to figure out what horse you think is going to win. You bet on it and you, other people, you know, ride the horse. That's, that's what <laughs> investing typically is, right? Um, you, you, you make decisions and it's, it's judgment based. Um, and you pull in all the facts and you make decisions, but you, you're not typically in charge of executing, right? Um, so no, I didn't, I didn't, that wasn't the plan. That's not what I knew I joined the board on behalf of John. So I'd be close to the operations, <laughs> um, sort of, you know, from, from a director position, but, but no, I wasn't thinking I'd become CEO at that point. And then you find yourself 
in charge because long story short, they say, listen, you were the one who put us in in touch with this company and you know it inside and out. You got to fix it because it wasn't a a horrific situation, but there were a lot of things that could be changed. So you find yourself at the helm of this huge restaurant chain. Uh, I mean, did you have any experience with Chinese food at all? Well, you know, what happened is, you know, before I became CEO, um, so when we did the deal, that was the beginning of 2019. Um, and you're right, the, the company was in, a, in horrific shape, but there was a lot we wanted to transform. So it wasn't an investment where we just put in money and, you know, wanted them to keep doing what they were doing. There were a lot of things we wanted to change with the guest experience, with the off-premise dining, uh, digital, our di- digital orientation. Um, so we brought in a fantastic CEO, though he was more focused on the nuts and bolts operations uh, and had less time for all this transformation that we wanted to do, right? So things were moving too slowly in, in terms of some of the digital investments we wanted to make specifically, you know, I wanted an app, you know, one of the e-commerce engine and all these different things. And, you know, I called from New York and, you know, what's going on and, you know, you kind of get a story and nothing really happened unless I came to Scottsdale and, you know, would pull people together and ask questions and, and actually drive it. Um, and, you know, I'm responsible for the deal, you know, to John. So John asked me like, what's going on? And I, you know, I, I can't be in New York saying, I think they're working on it. I don't know. Right. So I just start coming out to um, actually uh, yeah. make sure that I was on top of things. Right. So, so I flew out to Scottsdale every week for a year. I'd come out on Monday, fly back on Thursday, um, spend days with the team and with the CEO. Um, and, you know, I got, I had a great relationship with the CEO we brought in. Uh, John Antiaco is his name. Uh, and, you know, after a couple of weeks of me coming out, he's like, listen, if you're going to be here, let's give you a title so that, you know, you can have an actual reporting structure and people can, you know, you're not just my promotership, you have a title at the company, right? So, you know, he, he wanted me to become chief strategy officer at the company. So I took that to Paulson, he approved. So I, I kind of had, I had a dual role. I was chief strategy officer at uh, PF Chang's and I still was a partner at Paulson, right? Mm-hmm. So I was doing both. Um, which I say that just to say that I didn't just drop in a CEO from from not being involved at all. I spent a year as chief strategy officer driving a lot of our um, transformative initiatives. Uh, so when the CEO transition came, I'd spent a year more or less helping John Antioch with the CEO and being kind of a shadow CEO, um, you know, making decisions with him, going through the operations with him, joining the field visits, spending time with the teams, visiting the restaurants. Uh, leading some of the initiatives so that when I took over it, it was it was a lot smoother transition than it, than it might sound if if I would have just dropped in from from, you know, directly from Paulson. Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, you get the call. You're now the CEO. 
What was your first thought? I mean, you had never run a restaurant chain. Had you ever been a waiter? I mean, what what experience did you have? I'd been a waiter. The, you know, that helps in a, <laughs> in a way, but that's not it. I was a waiter in high school. Um, and, you know, I, I, and obviously I led the deal. So I, I think the most important thing was I knew exactly what we were trying to achieve. You know, I wrote the thesis along with, with John Paulson and, you know, organizations that fail a lot of times it's based on a misalignment or unclear directives between ownership management and the people operate, you know, executing on, on the ground. Right. When you have perfect alignment, it's a lot easier to win. There's a lot of different ways to win in life, but everybody needs to kind of agree as to what you're doing. And when you don't have that agreement, things can go south very quickly. Right. So the number one thing in me coming in was that I could align the organization around a very clear vision that, uh, came directly from ownership. So there's no daylight between ownership and management at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could deliver a clear message in terms of strategy. And and that was kind of my first thing I felt like, you know, we needed to fix, right? Because there was a little uncertainty as to what, you know, what was actually the plan and what we're going to do. And um, so that was one. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, I came in in the middle of a crisis, right? So there wasn't a lot of time to doubt myself or ask a lot of questions. You know, the the decision was made and, uh, you know, it was my deal. I was responsible for it. Um, so I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't um, worried. I, I just was problem solving from, from the moment it was my responsibility. Right. So restaurants are closed. When can we open them? How many, what's the schedule? Like these are the, this immediately was like, we got to get through this crisis first before it, anything else can, can, you know, really be, you know, to, to, to allow ourselves a chance of success in the future. Right. So, yeah. you know, it was a lot of, it was, it was two things. It was the tactical problem solving of dealing with COVID and dealing with closed restaurants and making sure that we uh, could service our debt and negotiating with the lenders, negotiating with landlords and, and all these different things that needed to happen just to survive the oh, moment. Just to survive. And just to survive the moment, right? You have a moment you need to survive and then you have a long-term plan and a vision and a strategy that you need to get people aligned to, right? So I was trying to do both, right? Because you can't be so, you know, caught in the weeds on the present that you forget about the future, what you're trying to achieve. And so you survive the present and you have no plan, no alignment. Um, and at the same time, you can't be so forward thinking that you don't survive the present, right? So, so the, the biggest challenge was, was doing both, right? Um, and, it, you know, not to add more challenges, but, the, you know, when I took over, then we had another situation, which was the riots that took place after the George Floyd, um, the murder of George Floyd, which, right. you know, began as protests and ended up being, uh, destructive riots in some of our restaurants. So the day I took over was the weekend after that happened. So I had all these things I was trying to solve and then a bunch of restaurants that were vandalized and, and damaged and some of the looting that took place. Um, and it, it was it was, it was was a lot to deal with at once, um, but it was kind of, you know, step by step. My first email was going to be a strategic email to kind of align the organization on strategy. I, I threw that in the trash can and instead addressed the George Floyd situation, which I thought was uh, more important in that moment, given Agreed. that was the headline and that was what everybody was thinking about and everybody was talking about. Yes. Um, so, you know, I had to be fluid. I had to be nimble. There was a lot going on, but, you know, we got through that period. You know, we have a great team. You know, our, our COO was on top of the operational side of things um, and uh, we, we were able to make it through and then ultimately get to, you know, some of the success you mentioned. Uh, especially in our second year. Well, that's the interesting part. In 2019, you started ramping up, and of course, this is before the pandemic, the app, and to make sure that there was this opportunity for takeout, because up until then, you guys really didn't have that. I mean, all Chinese food should be takeout, as far as I'm concerned, at least have that offering. But then the pandemic hits, 
And, you know, what kind of challenge did you face in getting the word out that, yes, P.F. Chang's does takeout? We can feed you guys even in the worst of times. Yeah, you know, so you're 100 percent right. The key was that the infrastructure was built during 2019 of the year leading up to the pandemic. Um, so once the once we had the ability for people to order on our app and on our website, uh, then it became a marketing conversation. Right. So. Uh, we ramped up our digital marketing, both in terms of the email messaging that we sent. Uh, you know, we have a loyalty file at the time that was around six or seven million people. It's about 10 million now. So leveraging that to get the word out to guests um, and potential guests, uh, our social uh, digital, our, our sorry, our paid social marketing. Um, so, you know, social media marketing uh, and making sure that people knew that the app was available. They could download it. It was a great experience. They get the best pricing. Um, and so that's something we worked with our, our marketing team to make sure that we, we did effectively. And at the same time, you got to make sure the operations are great, right? So if somebody does uh, take the time to download the app and make and, and place an order, it needs to arrive on time, it needs to arrive fresh, it needs to be what they expected, what they ordered, and they need to leave thinking they had a great experience, right? Because if you attract somebody via marketing and they have a bad experience, you're going to lose them, yes. and that return is going to be low. Mm. If you attract somebody via marketing and they have a tremendous experience, they're going to come back, and they're going to come back, and they going to come back. And the lifetime value of you know whatever money you spent to attract that guest is going to be very high, right? So so you know it was marketing and then it was operations to make sure that when people did come in they had a uh, a great off premise experience and and that's what really led to our success. I do have to finish by asking you what do you think was the one characteristic you either had or developed as you took the reins of PF Chang's during such a difficult time that all entrepreneurs out there, young or old, anybody listening who dreams of starting a business, what was that characteristic you feel you had that helped you survive and helped you keep the company alive during what all companies face at some point or another in their life? And that is a near-death experience. You know, I think what I would say is the most important characteristic in a situation like that is transparency. Um, you know, people are smart and they know what's going on in the world. And if you hide things from them, they can feel that. And so I think it's important to be upfront about the situation. Um, you know, like I said, the, the, one of the first things I did was send out a long email detailing the challenges we we're facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a town hall when I joined, walked through the balance sheet, walked through the PL, walked through um, our strategy to survive COVID and what we we're going to need to do. And when you do that and they feel like they're part of the solution, then they're going to be more energized to fight. Um, and more energized to, to take a hell for you because you brought them into the tent uh, versus if they don't know what's happening, you're not communicating, you're just giving directives and they don't know how it fits in. Um, there's going to be a lot less enthusiasm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm honest and transparent naturally. That wasn't something I had to fake or learn, but I think it's, um, I think it's critical, right? And, you know, I'd go to the field, I'd, I'd you know, go to restaurants. I had a town hall in Texas and, you know, I remember I had a, um, a deck that I walked through that again was very transparent about our situation and what we were expecting from them and what our strategy was going to be going forward. Uh, and the market partner in Texas, a guy named Paul Anderson, you know, he's been in the company for 20 plus years. Uh, you know, a, a, a Texas guy that's very well respected within the organization. Um, and he kind of asked me, he's like, listen, you know, we've, we've had uh, three CEOs come in, in in the last three years and yeah. everybody has a different plan. And, right. you know, how do I know this is going to change? He's like, he goes, if, if you promise me this plan isn't going to change, I promise you will be able to deliver. Right. Um, right. You know, I can, and I could look him in the eye and say, you know, this plan is, 
uh, comes from ownership. It's, you know, there's no confusion about what we're doing. You know, I can promise you this plan is going to change and I'll, I'll stand by that. Right. So it's, it's letting people in the eye and being honest and being transparent and letting them know what we're doing and why letting them ask questions. Cause yes. if you believe in your plan, you should be comfortable being questioned about it. Um, and, and, you know, people bought in, right. And the energy was different. The enthusiasm was different. And, um, and, and that's an important thing to, cause you can't, you know, you can't sit in your headquarters and run a business like this and expect that you're going to, uh, lead it to success yourself. Like you need a lot of people bought in. You need a lot of people to believe and understand. Yes. The troops, the troops so, have to follow you. Yes. Yeah, it's rallying the troops. And, you know, there's a quote that I like <laughs> that, uh, um, well, it's from a it's from the Song of Ice and Fire novels, which is what they made the Game of Thrones books or uh, uh, shows rather out of. Right. Uh, and the quote is, uh, "Know your men and let them know you. Don't ask them to die for a stranger." It's Ned Stark for anybody who watches the show says that in the books. <laughs> but I love that quote because people need to know who they're following and why and what what the objective is and what the plan is. You know, transparency and and knowing the team, like me going out there meant a lot to people, right? Like me going to Texas, me going to California, me going to New York and sitting down with people, you know, um, it, it means a lot. So I'd say transparency, which I said, and then availability, like being out there yes. and having a presence, um, especially, especially when times are hard, um, are the key things to, to, or some of the key traits you can have in a moment like that. Well, Damola, you've got to get people to follow you into battle. And I think that's a great analogy. And you have, at least for now, figured it out. The company is growing. You, of course, started P.F. Chang's to go, which is a huge success. And we can't wait to continue following your story. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And everybody, P.F. Chang's, have the Mongolian beef. Absolutely. Oh my God! It's to and, die and the chicken for. lettuce wraps. I'll plug that as well. That's oh, yeah. our top seller. Oh yeah, I, I forgot about those. Yeah, <laughs> forgot about those. Don't look at the fat content. Just look at the protein content. <laughs> Great to have you, Tamola. And and you guys, my pleasure. what do I tell you? You know, look at this guy. I mean, he was moving all over the world. He always had to adjust. He had to change. He saw opportunities, and when there weren't opportunities, he made them for himself. And that's what I need you to glean from these kinds of stories, and I know you do. And we've been getting such great feedback from you guys. And and most of all, the fact that you're downloading and listening means so much to me. Spread the word about Everyone Talks to Liz. OMG, oh my God. Uh, listen, you can see me versus just listening to me Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on Fox Biz every week. So I, I hope to see you and to uh, have you join me once again. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. 